0: Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I will need everybody to look there, uh, either on your electronic version, or you can use the Pew Bible if you brought your hard copy too. In the Pew Bible, it's page 961. But we'll look at those verses, and you'll have to have it there in front of you for sure. I'll read Matthew 28 to begin, which is the account of the resurrection, one of the four main accounts of the resurrection in the New Testament. Many references to it, of course, but these are the four eyewitness accounts from the gospel writers from four different angles, Um, the same story, just with different nuances to the story because it happened, and it was there recorded for us by those witnesses and passed to us by the Holy Spirit's oversight for sure, but many witnesses, especially in that time frame. Then some 20 years after the actual resurrection, Paul writes to the Corinthians, maybe 25 years at the most. And he's writing to a people who live quite a ways from Jerusalem. They had come to faith in Christ through the preaching of the gospel, and they had the testimony of Christ. Many eyewitnesses had ventured to Corinth, but the core church of Corinth wouldn't have been people who lived in Jerusalem. And they were still heavily influenced by Greek philosophy and culture, which was no possibility there could be a physical resurrection, which we know that's the general truth. That's the natural law of it, but that's what makes Christ's resurrection so verifying, so validating about the gospel. But surely people come into doubt at times. And so Paul writes to bolster the Corinthians in their faith in Christ, and in so doing, gives the most thorough explanation of the significance of the resurrection in the Bible. I want to spend our time this morning looking at 1 Corinthians 15. Now, on the way to that, I want to begin by reading the resurrection account from Matthew and then a small portion from 1 Corinthians 15 that's on the outline. But I know you'll have your Bibles handy. This is Matthew 28, 1 through 10, God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now some years later, Paul writing to the Corinthians, chapter 15, verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he has has raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as a man by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Great Heavenly Father, you sent your Son to pay for our sins on a brutal cross, and you raised Jesus our Savior from the dead. In the end, the fact of your raising him proves that he is our Savior. Lord Jesus, you are the risen, reigning, caring, shepherding one. You have set us free from sin and death. You have given us hope. And hope in God is a certainty that yields great confidence for living today. Allow us no confidence in anything that we have done or are doing. But once again, as we consider the way the resurrection impacts everything, give us confidence in you. Holy Spirit, Grant your people a holy boldness as we serve the living King. Fill us so that we might celebrate your grace and make the name of Christ, the risen one, famous. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. With your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians 15, it's not an overstatement to say that the resurrection of Jesus impacts everything. If it's true, as the New Testament records, then every person is beholden to Christ. Now, people may be putting it off, not reading it or not considering it, but it doesn't change the fact of who Christ is as the risen King. If Jesus truly defeated death on a very practical everyday level, as all the eyewitness accounts attest to, no one can afford to ignore the implications of that resurrection. And it's a great joy to us who are in Christ. In recent years, I've been intrigued by Uh, A pretty popular personality named Jordan Peterson. He's a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. He's a tenured professor, so in the recent years, he could pretty much say whatever he wants, or at least he's trying to say whatever he wants. And he's the most popular person on YouTube right now. If you go to YouTube, you'll probably see on the the left-hand side one of dozens of his different uh, interviews, discussions with people. Now he has a podcast. Now, for years... As a psychologist, he believed that there was a benefit to religion. He did not personally believe that you could say there's really a God, but he could see in people that he met that the idea that there was a God was comforting to them. He could see on a societal level why that would be an important thing. He recognized that. He taught that as a younger professor. But then in the last year and a half, he was was fell with many different kinds of illnesses and ailments that almost took his life on a few occasions. And coming out of that in the last few months, he looks frail, and you can tell that he's shaken by what he's been through. But now he's speaking with a different angle. I'm not suggesting that he's come to faith in Christ, but he's now reading the Bible and admitting that there's something here that's beyond just an invention of people writing it. There's something beyond the narrative. There's something objective about who Christ is. In a recent interview with an Eastern Orthodox theologian, he said something that really, really gripped me. He said, I'm struck between two impossible choices. And you could almost feel his frustration with the two choices he has. What are they? He said, I have to believe that God took on flesh and was crucified and died and rose three days later. That's an impossible thing to believe. He said, but there's something more impossible to believe. I have to believe that humans just invented this preposterous story that's stretched into every atom of culture. That's harder to believe that than it is the story is true. This cannot be a human invention," he said. The narrative and the objective touch the person of Christ. Touch in the person of Christ. See, Peterson is at a rational crossroads. He's recognizing the implication: if Christ has defeated death, if He was raised again, then this changes everything. It impacts everything. He has to rethink the whole of his life and purpose for it. Now, I'm not here in the church to convince you of the historicity of the resurrection. It'll be in our passage a bit. I know you come believing that. If you don't believe that, I hope you come to believe that as it's preached, as it's proclaimed, as you consider the claim. You have to consider the claim. And for believers, we love to consider it because we know the truth of it. We know the impact of it. We know that there's multiple resurrections. There's the resurrection of Jesus, but there's also the resurrection every one of us had when we were transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but we were made alive together with Christ. That's the first resurrection that we experienced. But there's a final resurrection that's coming, guaranteed from the first one. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, no one in Christ will ever taste ultimate death. Yes, we'll die physically, but that's just a temporary pause in the overall plan of the glorious resurrection that Jesus will bring forth because of what he has done. And we are in him. We are in his resurrection just as we are in his life. And we celebrate that as believers and we recognize its impact on everything. It gives your life significance, it gives purpose, it gives meaning to all the things God calls us to. As we interact with other people who, will, who are facing an eternity, we have opportunity to express what we have in Christ. And as we express this by God's ministry of the Spirit, pe- more people come to believe and rest on Christ. This is the glorious uh, aftermath of the resurrection is Jesus sits at his father's right hand and brings former enemies to himself, subdues us to himself. It's a glorious thing that Christians can see with full eyes when they recognize what the Lord is doing. No matter what's happening in the world, it may be falling apart, the kingdom does not stop god keeps doing his work the world over people come to this saving knowledge of christ because he's the living living christ he's just not a dead guru who has some book we read to be inspired by he's a living savior seated at the right hand of god's throne and from there he is making the nations a footstool and we are part of this and we come to worship him for this and we praise him for this the resurrection of jesus gives our lives meanings and significance all for the glory of God. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I did five sermons on this one time seven years ago, so I'll go real fast and cover those in this 20 minutes. I want to walk through this passage, though, and make comment as we walk through together, because I think this is the richest, deepest passage in the Bible for our understanding of the purpose of resurrection, um, even a bit about our resurrection related to what Christ has done. First, I want you to see, as Paul lays out for us in the opening section, that the resurrection of Jesus, the, the fact of it and the truth of it, that's the anchor of the good news of the gospel. There's no good news of salvation in Christ without him defeating death. Verse 1, he says, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand. There's some doubt going on among the Corinthians, as any Any normal human being, even in Christ, we struggle with doubts from time to time. And the word of God comes to us to comfort us. And the apostle does this. He's reminding them of the gospel, that he had preached to them, that they had heard and they had believed and they were standing in it, they were living in it. He wants to make that gospel known to them afresh. Verse 2, and by which you are being saved as you lay hold of Christ and rest in Christ, it continues to uphold you in your assurance of being God's children. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. In other words, if you didn't believe, then you're not gonna have this sense of assurance I'm talking about. But if you did, you should be assured. That's what he's saying. Persevere in this faith. Keep believing. And now in verse three and verse four, he basically gives what is the, the total of the gospel, this gospel that he had delivered and they had accepted. Look closely at it because it's important. This is where we see resurrection, Christ's resurrection, as an anchor of the gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance. The most important thing in the time I spent with you, Corinthians, was what I delivered to you. What is it? What I received. He got this from Christ himself. That Christ died for our sins. That's the first point. In accordance with the scriptures, just the way the scripture predicted and records. That he was buried. That's the second point. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He, in very summary form, verse 3 and verse 4, explains the gospel. And we see how the resurrection of Jesus is the anchor to that gospel. It's part and parcel to the gospel. You can't separate the resurrection of Christ and still have good news. Remember, Christianity is not just about a message better than other messages to make us feel better than other messages might make us feel or live a a more fruitful life or inspire us. we don't know what happens after death. But, you know, maybe our soul flows off and gets wings or whatever it may. You know, we don't, we don't really think of that. We just think of what Jesus did to inspire us. That is not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is reversal of the fall that led to death spiritually, which then led to physical death. It's utter reversal of that in the second Adam. To restore us back to our, the state of paradise that is your physical body in the presence of God the new heavens and the new earth, it's a reversal to the glory of God of the fall that happened under Adam. David Pryor, who comments on this passage, said that Christianity is concerned not with mere immortality, nor with sheer survival, nor with the the transmigration of the soul somewhere, nor with incarnation, but with the resurrection of the dead and nothing less. That's what Christianity is about. Actual resurrection of the dead, just like it was true for Christ. Paul speaks to the historical reality of the resurrection in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 15. Look there. Now he's going to root this in history. He's not going to spend a lot of time here, but what he says is packed. He appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Here he's giving a, 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 a circles of expansion going out of how many people the risen Jesus appeared to personally in over a, a lengthy period of time. Uh, we probably have 200 to 250 here, maybe 300. If, if I did something really crazy, you would all get a real quick handle on it. Well, you probably would tweet it or Facebook it or whatever you, we could do today. It would go out pretty fast. But this is a, a really large group that's going to be able to relay what happened here. You would be sound witnesses. Not to mention, in the case of Jesus' resurrection, that extra special work of the Holy Spirit to, to make sure that they solidified what happened and then reproduced it as the Gospels were written. But this is not a small amount of people Paul's referring to. 500 at least. Many who were still alive at the time he wrote Corinthians in the mid-50s A.D., so he's rooting it in a historical event. There's no denial about this. There are many more events that everybody agrees with that have a lot less attestation than the the resurrection. So he's drawing them into the realization that they know Jesus rose again. So stop listening to the Greek philosophers who are telling you that there's no such thing as resurrection. He appeared to Cephas, he appeared to the disciples, to these hundreds of witnesses, to James, the brother of Jesus. This is one of the brothers who did not believe in Jesus when he was doing his earthly ministry and then came to faith in Christ after the resurrection. Then to the apostles, he's talking about the 12 here, and others in the immediate ring of messengers who were there in the first century uniquely. Look at verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 15. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now Paul's talking about himself. He's the one who met Jesus long after or at least considerably, a considerable time after the other disciples. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me, is with me. This is, of course, Paul's reference to the fact that he was railing against Christ and the church until Jesus met him. The risen Christ met him on the road to Damascus and turned everything around because that's what the resurrection does. It completely changes everything if you really contemplate its implications. If you really recognize what it means, it will color the whole of your life. It will give you a courage about the life you live. It will give you clarity of mission. It will give you purpose. It will give you a different outlook on people, a love for them, or a desire to see them too come to know the living Christ. Jesus appeared to Paul, and this is the moving event of Paul's life for sure, and it's all bound up in the resurrected Christ. You know, what we read here in Corinthians is an impressive litany of significant witnesses. You know, some 25 years later, uh, all these witnesses of Christ around validating what Paul's speaking of here. He's arguing from the fact of the resurrection. You know, it's an interesting uh, item to think of that the first book of the New Testament was written in 47 AD. That's probably the Gospel of Mark. Most scholars agree it was probably Mark who wrote it. Remember, Mark was on the missionary journey, left early. He probably wrote the Gospel around that time frame or right before the journey. Don't know exactly, but it was circulating before 50. Before 50, okay, that's 33 AD when Jesus ascends. And then by 50, 17 years later, maybe 14 years later, there's already a written account that can be scrutinized. I mean, you have the disciples all still alive, the apostles alive. So they can scrutinize Mark's account. Is this true? And then John writes one. And Matthew writes one. Luke writes one. Of course, the Holy Spirit working, but if you're just looking at it as a literary feat, it's a very credible foursome of individuals who are highly credible penning this story within the first less than 30 years of Jesus' ascending. Now, to put that into perspective, there are many of you here who were here when this sanctuary was built. Now, many of you probably think, if you're in that crowd, we have a new sanctuary. It's really new, right? It's 14 years old now. Now, do you remember 14 years ago? It was pretty soon ago. I remember it like it was yesterday, standing right down there, reading the first verse, praising God that we we're in this new sanctuary. 14 years ago, but I remember it like it was yesterday. So 14 years from the time that Jesus ascends at the first gospel, not long at all. Not long at all. And so it's a powerful witness Of the truth of the resurrection of Christ. And we have to make no mistake here. That resurrection of Jesus is the anchor of the good news of the gospel that makes us know that it's true, that he's defeated death, and in Christ we see the defeat of death too. Verse 11, Paul speaks to his call to preach. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So we get a little bit of an inkling of what was going on. There were doubts. There were people struggling. It happens. But he just really is straight and blunt with them. Verse 13, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, you just don't think it's true at all, then not even Christ could be raised. And understand, if Christ has not been raised, verse 14, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. The resurrection is the cornerstone, the foundation of the good news of Christ. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God if we're saying Jesus rose and you can't have anybody raised because we testified about God, about God that he raised Christ. That's the essence of our message to you is that Jesus was raised by God. If it's not true that the dead are not raised, verse 16, not even Christ has been raised. It could get worse though if it's not true. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Jesus is of no use to us if he was not raised again. It's just another of many other people who spouted Proverbs, you might say, and then were defeated by death in the end. And we know it's mu- he's much more than that. Why do we know that? Because he was raised again. And he's seated at his father's right. He's still active. He's reigning in your life and in this, on this earth. Verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be pitied. That's the straight up truth of the matter. Without the resurrection, death still reigns. Preaching is in vain, faith is in vain. I promise you, I've said this to you before I would never, ever be up here if Jesus did not rise again. I would be doing something else this Sunday morning. You should be too, really. But he did, he has risen. And that changes everything. Now I want to be here all the time just to sing his praise and then go form this platform of praise of the risen king who's guiding and directing every aspect of her life and is never leaving us. And we go in a completely more significant and meaningful way when we get this, when we understand this by God's grace. Verse 19 begins an adversative, one of the great adversatives in scripture. Verse 19 says, "'If in Christ we have hope in this life only,' We are of all people most to be pitied. But verse 20, this is the glorious adversative I'm speaking of. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. You see this, these adversatives in the Bible a few times. There's some really, really powerful ones in Paul's writing. And Paul writes in the Romans another adversative. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. Adversative. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it through the righteousness of Christ through faith for all who believe an adversative sets up a flow of thought going in a certain direction but then switches in a single word and reverses course altogether an adversative conjunction you'll remember from your English class expresses opposition or contrast between two statements it happens again in first corinthians 6 do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of god do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral thieves greedy and names all these different sins that we commit or have committed then he says and such were some of you but adversative you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. And of course, one of the great ones that we just walked through in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in trespasses and sins which you once walked. You were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but adversative, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. These are the great adversatives of the Bible. Now we have one in 1 Corinthians 15:19 and 20 that we should not go by too quickly. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be pitied if he had not been raised again. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, Adam By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So the resurrection of Jesus is the anchor of the gospel. From his resurrection... He continues to be active. Your salvation is sure in Christ and he is still active in preserving you and bringing you to final salvation and not just you, but us, his people, those who are united to Christ by faith. This is how the resurrection continues, if you will, from his state of being arisen to give our lives meaning and significance all for the glory of God. Look at verse 24. You'll see there where there's a bit of a glimpse on his coming again and then what he's doing before he comes again. This is a, a helpful insight. It's like Paul's cracking the door open a little to peek in into the mysteries of Christ in this sense. Verse 24, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So he's speaking about he rises from the dead, ascends to heaven. From there, eventually, he'll come and the full resurrection will occur. But there's that gap between, and that's what he's speaking about in verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. So what is Jesus doing right now? He's seated at the right hand of his Father. He sent the Holy Spirit to work in his church, his body, to proclaim the message of reconciliation with God in the gospel. And by that proclamation more and more people are brought into the kingdom. And it transcends all the normal lines that we notice, like national lines or ethnic lines or class lines. All the things we think of are of no concern to God in the spread of his kingdom. The message of the gospel goes forward wherever his people are and more people come. And that's what the son is doing at the right hand of the father now with, with complete care and perfection about how it happens. And when the last of his people, a number known only to him, When the last of his people are called unto Christ, when they come to know Christ, that's when he'll return. That's when the resurrection occurs. I have no idea when that is. But the work he's doing is sure and it's deliberate and it's intentional as the son reigns from the side of his father. He's very interested in every aspect of what's going on in the world and is sovereign over it all. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Verse 25. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So He brings his enemies. And boy, aren't you glad, by the way, that God's subduing his enemies, those nasty enemies, those terrible enemies? Who are his enemies? I'm one of his enemies. You're one of his enemies apart from him subduing us to him. Praise God that he subdues his enemies. We were his enemies, it says in Romans chapter 5. But now we're brought together by the blood of Jesus to be his friends. So he's doing the work of subduing his enemies, which means he's bringing people to himself to, to rest in Christ, and once he's done with that, verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The final resurrection will happen at that time. Uh, Prior, who I, reckon, or, who I commented on, or commented from earlier, said to Paul's redeemed, renewed, and uniquely inspired mind, there was an unbroken continuity between the empty tomb and the perfection of heaven. Remove the fact of resurrection and you have excised the very life principle of the kingdom of God. The resurrection is what assures us of God's plan working itself through. Verse 27. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he has accepted those who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, Then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him to put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. This is just the future consequence of the resurrection of Christ being played out. In fact, He's quoting from Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, where. God the Father says to God the Son, the Lord says to my Lord, sit in my right hand while I make your enemies a footstool. This is where he subdues people to himself. The risen Christ, the name above all names, because uh, he has done the work that God asked him to do and he's not lost one that the Father gave to him, he seats his son at the right hand, his right hand, where his name will be exalted and he's going to bring more and more people to himself until that final resurrection and all will recognize the glory of Christ and the magnificence of God, and the glory of God will shine. We'll love it. We'll love the glory of God the way we were designed to love it before the fall. This is a great future that awaits those who are in Christ because it's a great future for the glory of Christ. The mission of the church is under the lordship of the resurrected Christ. Jesus sits at his Father's right hand, and through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, he expands his kingdom. This gives us personal purpose and corporate purpose too as a church. Finally, I want you to notice in the last portion of this passage, verse 35, really down to about verse 50. This is some of the, kind of the nuts and bolts of resurrection, what it looks like for us. Paul is giving us, by the Holy Spirit's leading, of course, as much of a picture as we could have. I don't know that our minds can completely uh, understand what the resurrection blueprint would look like for our physiology. I don't know that. I think that we can look, though, to Christ as the prototype Jesus' glorified body is the prototype for resurrection. Verse 20 in the passage earlier we read, in fact, Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So it means that he's the first of many who have fallen asleep. He's the, the first example of what resurrection looks like. So something about Jesus' earthly body after the resurrection um, indicates to us what our experience would be like. In verse 21 it said, By a man came death, Adam, of course, and we died in him. Our bodies die, our souls die, then our bodies followed suit. By a man has also come resurrection of the dead. So it reverses. Our souls are made alive and then our body eventually is is restored. This is the beauty of what Jesus does in the full redemption. And Paul gets as practical as you can get starting in verse 35. Verse 35, someone will ask, he says. He just knows someone's wondering this. Ready to raise their hand as he's preaching on Jesus' resurrection. How were the dead raised? Good question. I mean, I know people in the first century, someone might say, that were torn limb from limb by lions and their remains were burned. How how will the resurrection happen? With what kind of body do they come? Well, God is never hindered by, by what's happened to our earthly bodies. Never hindered. He's able to create out of the dirt. He'll have no issue with reconstituting because it's somewhere in this it's so, those components will be somewhere. That doesn't hinder him. Our physical death and burial will turn into new life as God resurrects us. It says in verse 36, You foolish person! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. We have to go through the process of death, this side of the fall, before glory. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he's chosen, and to each, each kind of seed, its own body. God's turned the unnatural physical death process, and it is an unnatural process. You know, people say he died of natural causes. Not technically. I'm not saying you should say this at the moment. That wouldn't be the right time, but there are no natural causes other than what comes naturally from sin. Um, we were made to live forever. Uh, sin came, in, in humanly speaking, from our angle of understanding, sin came and death came in. And so now God restores us to a living existence that cannot be broken any longer. With the exception of just a few people who will be alive, relatively few people, who will be alive when the final resurrection occurs, most people will undergo physical death before the glorious resurrection that awaits. Look at verse 39. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans and other animals, birds, fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly one heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. He's trying to set up the point. The earthly body you have is similar to the glorified body we will have, but they're not identical. There's differences with them. Verse 41, there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in their glory. So there's something glorious about the bodies in existences we have, which is hard to imagine, I realize, but there's something that's in the image of God printed there. And even though we're under the fall, there's something still there that's glorious, but not nearly as glorious as that which is to come. Verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. And Jesus's death and resurrection picture this at some level for us. It's sown as a natural body. It's raised as a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So think of how we have to sometimes, um, to see advancement, you have to tear some things down to then build them up. Just down the road at our other campus for HCA, they had a perfectly operational intersection as far as I could tell. I mean, you could drive it and get to the school within a reasonable amount of time. But they want to build a huge intersection that are multiple lanes wide and it will be way better when they're done. And it's true, they will be. But in the meantime, they have to tear down that thing and you have to drive way around it. It's a 10, 15-minute delay sometimes. So that's ultimately something much better will come out of it. To some degree, it's like that in our earthly bodies. Um, they're breaking down over time. Um, they're not getting better, they're getting worse. We may stave it off a little while, but you know and I know that things keep falling apart. Not everybody's Glenn Timmons. Most people are more like Tony. And I'm not even 50 yet. I'm getting close. But it's just it ain't getting prettier, I can promise you that. Every ache and pain, you feel a little different. During the prayer, i got to crack my back half the time just because I'm uh, in agony over here. That's just the reality of the life we're living right now. But eventually, though outwardly we're wasting away, we're being renewed inwardly, day by day. And it's for a glory that will far outweigh what we're dealing with right now. That's the pattern that we have to look forward to as God works it. Sown in perishable condition, raised imperishable, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power. All of these things we look forward to, it says in verse 45. "The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, the man of dust, the second man is from heaven." As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to this. The new body that we'll receive will be a considerable upgrade, an incalculable upgrade. I know personally I'm looking forward to maybe a smaller nose and a little better hair. That's what I would prefer. Maybe you could fill in the blank of what you'd like. I don't know if you have that say, but whatever it is, it will be beautiful, it will be glorified in a way that we can't even imagine right now. And the best part is our, even our outlook will not be to elevate other people for it like we do now. It'll be to give praise to God for his creation, for what he does, for his reflection. It'll all point back to the purposes which he has ordained it. What will our new body be like? Jesus' resurrection body is the prototype. It says in 1 John, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. He rose, the tomb was empty, his body was resurrected, the same body but in a glorified state. The wounds from his crucifixion were still visible to those who saw him. He could be touched. He was not just an apparition or a phantom. He looked Human in every regard, he conversed along the road with the disciples and they never questioned whether he was a person. He ate real earthly food with his friends In another occasion. Yep, his body had other worldly properties as well. He walked through a wall, that appears, to talk to the disciples. Our bodies will be like his. Real, physical, genuinely human bodies. The very bodies that we have on this earth in some seed form, but perfected and glorified. Our earthly body is transformed into conformity with Christ's body in the resurrection. No longer subjected to fatigue or weakness, sickness, death, age, injury, spiritual bodies. Now, don't get ahead of yourself because God has appointed us to this life to live by his grace. And even through our trials and our tribulations, he uses that suffering we have in this time frame to draw us closer to him with a stronger witness for him so that more people would come to realize Christ as their savior. That's his purpose even in the trials that we endure as we await this day that will come. Tim Keller, who is a pastor in the PCA, was diagnosed with cancer several months ago. In fact, he's already outlived the early diagnosis for his particular cancer. He's been a long-time pastor and writer. Many of you probably are aware of him. He wrote an article like 10 days ago that I can't commend enough to you. It's in the Atlantic, and it's called My Faith in the Face of Death. And then subtitled, I spent a lifetime counseling others before my diagnosis. Will I be able to take my own advice? He knows what's coming. You know, what would he draw upon in these days when he knows death is coming? Now, we all know death is coming, but some people find it out that way, and it's coming quicker. At least they know it's coming quicker. And for a pastor, it is a good question to ask. You know, it's one thing to be up here boldly preaching or sitting by your bedside and reading your passage, you know, before you go to meet the Lord or uh, meeting with a family who's just lost someone. And all of us in this room have lost somebody probably in the last six months, many people in our church, let alone last year, 18 months. We all relate with that. It's one thing to tell others But when it's you, and it will be you, it will be me, what will you draw upon? And I found interesting the various things he said. He said a lot, but the part that really I gravitated to is this section. He starts to focus on the resurrection of Christ in a way he had never done before, despite a ministry of preaching for over 45 years. He said another area of head work for me had to do with Jesus' resurrection. Ironically, I had already begun on a book about Easter before I got diagnosed with cancer. Before cancer, the resurrection had been pretty theoretical for me. I believed it in the scripture, but it was no longer theoretical at all. I'm familiar with the common charge that any belief in an afterlife is a mere wish fulfillment without grounding in fact. And that belief in Jesus, some people say, is in the same category as faith in the flying spaghetti monster. But over the last 20 years, I've been drawn to various passages about the resurrection, how it appears over and over again in the Bible. It's woven into the story. And then in addition to that, various works of scholars who mount the historical case for Jesus' bodily resurrection has drawn me back over and over again. And now in recent days, this is where I have returned. I return to this material now with greater skepticism than I had previously applied. I don't want to just believe it for the sake of believing it. I want to really dig into this, he says. I didn't want to be taken in. But as I reread the arguments, as I reread the passages, they seemed even more formidable and fair to me than they had in the past. They gave me a place to get my footing. And this is the purpose that Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 15, to give believers a place once again for their footing. The resurrection of Christ that gives our life meaning and significance. One scholar said famously, If the resurrection of Jesus is true, then his teachings are not just wise words from an old dead sage. They're the very words of God. And furthermore, his resurrection means that he is still alive and we can encounter him today. And because of his atoning death on the cross, all those who trust in him receive forgiveness for their sins and eternal life. So the resurrection for you has already started. Started when you came to Christ and you have yet the glorious resurrection to look forward to In the age to come, let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are risen and coming again. And when you come again, you will transform us and set all things new. Please free us from our paralysis of the present by giving us a clear grasp and belief in what you will do in the future. You have defeated death and you are doing the work of restoration. Father, please give us true perspective on the events around us the troubles, the pains, the miseries of this life this side of the final resurrection, they can be crippling and hindering to us at times. Please make us to be a people emboldened by our sure future. May the resurrection of Jesus do for us as it did for Paul, who though beat down and afflicted, was empowered to do great things for the advancement of Christ's kingdom because he knew of the certainty of his future based on Christ's victory over sin, his victory over death, his victory over hell and the grave.